Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. In this series, we cover clinically oriented material that focuses on how best to care for the traumatically injured and critically ill patients. My name is Patrick Georgioff. I'm a trauma surgery fellow at the University of Texas Memorial Hermann Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas. And today I'm joined by Dr. Brian Cotton and Dr. Ethan Taub. Dr. Cotton is a professor of surgery at McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas in Houston, and he is the director of the Acute Care and Surgical Critical Care Fellowship. Dr. Ethan Taub is an assistant professor and director of the surgery clerkship here at the University of uh, Texas. Uh, so this this series, or this excuse me, this episode is a part two in our discussion of complex trauma cases. So if you haven't listened to part one, uh, please do so. Uh, today we're going to continue uh, with uh, our discussion. I hope you enjoy. All right. So moving on to our next case, we got a, a young man, uh, gunshot wound to the abdomen. He's tachycardic. He's hypotensive, he's somnolent, he has a distended abdomen on exam, a positive fast exam. You uh, did a real quick primary secondary survey, it was efficient, it was lovely in the uh, trauma bay. You have excellent access, okay, you have subclavian cortis, you have a Belmont runner, you're giving whole blood. And you are in the OR with an excellent anesthesia team and a full, uh, all the accoutrements you need to do surgery. So uh, Dr. Taub, uh, we're gonna do a trauma laparotomy here, what are some of the, what are some of the key steps to a Trauma laparotomy. So, so first and foremost, this patient who's in extremis, hypotensive, gunshot wound in the abdomen, I'm spending almost no time in the emergency room. You did mention subclavian access. That is my last resort for access in this patient uh, because for me, two large bore IVs is going to be faster to get, uh, especially with, with our nurses. They're phenomenal. They're getting access on patients. I don't, I don't even know how they can do it. Uh, they get it quickly, much quicker than anyone can place a subclavian artery, uh, subclavian uh, vein line, and and I'm getting out of the ER as soon as I have my primary and secondary survey done, two large bore IVs. I'm I'm hauling butt to the operating room. Perfect. Because there we can continue moving things forward. Okay. If you stay and play in the ER, you're just wasting time. You cannot get hemorrhage control intraabdominally in any emergency room in the world. Intraabdominal hemorrhage control happens in the OR, and that's where this patient needs to be. So after wasting minimal time, I'm in the operating room, and I am prepping from chin to knees every single time. Every trauma laparotomy I do is exactly the same way. Chin to knees prep, I'm doing that while anesthesia is doing their thing. Again, this patient, uh, we mentioned this at the beginning, uh, when we started talking, they may have altered mental status. You have to tie up your your ER colleagues' hands sometimes so they don't try to intubate this patient because of their altered mental status. 
that can be done in the operating room, same place you're going to get hemorrhage control, same place you're going to keep moving things forward. Their altered mental status is not an airway problem. It's a C problem. It's a lack of perfusion to the brain problem. Right. And again, just to make it super clear, you give, you induce someone, regardless of what meds you use, paralyze, et cetera, and you put a breathing tube in, and they are uh, in this state of shock, you're going to have cardiovascular collapse. That's not good. Okay. So, so you, you want to be in the operating room when that occurs so that you can open the abdomen as quickly as you can. And if they're really an extremist, I'm opening and I'm sticking my hand straight up to the to the aortic hiatus and compressing that aorta and giving anesthesia a chance to to catch up with our massive transfusion protocol. Let me let me get put an asterisk or an uh, addendum to Dr. Tobbs access. I could not agree more. Peripheral IV access is number 1, number 2 and number 3 on this patient. Uh, subclavian I would think would probably be number 4 or 5. Uh, and the only reason I bring that up is because Femoral should be a last resort. You have a potential intra-abdominal hemorrhage. The last thing you want to do is convert a low-pressure bleeding system, if it's a venous injury, into a high-pressure system by running blood on a Belmont or level one through that groin. Uh, I've seen it uh, happen before. I've got actually some good little videos of post-mortems of a patient with an iliac gunshot wound where they had put a femoral line in and uh, gave the patient an acute abdominal compartment syndrome and death. So that would be that would be femoral would be last. If you have to do central, I think subclavian would probably be preferred on this patient if you have to do it. Another thing to do is if they've got one good peripheral and one marginal peripheral, you can upsize that peripheral with the RIC catheter, which I think is just fantastic. Yeah, so we're taking a Googling that real quick, taking a look at the uh, what that actually looks like. Yeah, so RIC, RIC. Yeah, rapid infusion catheter. Yep. And I think it's also worth mentioning, you know, depending on your institution and your capabilities and resources, this patient here gets a chest x-ray. Abdominal gunshot wound, even in extremis, takes me no time to get a chest film. If you don't have that ability, then that may be bilateral chest tubes and a pericardial fast. Right. Uh, if, if that's going to be faster than, than getting that chest film, which in many places it may very well be, and you'll be in the operating room and moving forward. And some of you may be going, why would Dr. Tob get a chest x-ray on an abdominal gunshot one? And, I, and I'm going to tell you why. The, the, the last uh, cardiac injury that I had uh, a couple weeks ago was a right lower quadrant of the abdomen gunshot wound. Yeah. When I shot the chest x-ray, that bullet was in the left shoulder. So you never know where these bullets can go. I've had perineal gunshot wounds end up in the chest and the shoulder as well. So that that uh, chest that chest X-ray is is of paramount importance. I think in every trauma patient, and for the most part, I get them in almost all of my trauma you, patients. You you've got to be pretty darn stable in my trauma bay and be very peripheral before I even think about not doing a chest X-ray because that's what's going to kill them is everything in that box. Yeah, you, don't right? know where, you do not know where that bullet went. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're in the op- so we're in the operating room now. Gunshot wound in the abdomen in extremis, prepped and draped as we're inducing. I'm making a, a xiphoid to pubis uh, laparotomy incision right down the middle and uh, getting in uh, like like the, uh, like they say in top knife with, with three swipes of the knife. Uh, that's the goal. Uh, if they're really in extremis, this is not the time to be bovine skin bleeders. This is the time to be using a knife and the knife gets you in. No bovine. So now we're in. Uh, if they're if they're really 
dying, I'm first thing I'm doing is sticking my hand up uh, uh, in into the uh, lesser sack up there uh, to get control of uh, to get control not the lesser sack uh, the lesser momentum uh, by the lesser curve of the stomach uh, just underneath the liver to compress the aorta at uh, the aortic hiatus and I'm going to compress that aorta give anesthesia a chance to catch up at the same time my my partner will be uh, packing the abdomen with laparotomy packs in all four quadrants now we're caught up uh, I'm going to start removing those packs in a systematic fashion. That's from the area of least likely to uh, have injury uh, to the most likely to have injury. And now I think uh, we're encountering a zone one hematoma in this scenario. Yeah, so you do that. Uh, there was a couple liters of blood in the belly. Okay, you rapidly got in, uh, you got um, your pack, and you identify uh, the source of bleeding. Uh, it looks like to be a, a zone one hematoma. Um, and it's expanding and it's big. Uh, and so Dr. Cotton, tell me what zone one, two, and three, again, remind me of what they are for the abdomen. Sure, so zone one is centrally located. It's gonna be, some people uh, split it up into uh, supercolic and, and, and infracolic. Uh, this is going to be the area that contains all those big named structures that are at least in netters red and blue. So this is going to be your aorta all the way from the diaphragm hiatus all the way down to its bifurc near its bifurcation. This is going to be your IVC from uh, the bifurcation up to the insertion and going to be the renal vessels, going to be your uh, uh, celiac and going to be your uh, SMA, SMV. Okay. So some big all named structures that uh, all bright red and blue in uh, netters. Zone two, lateral to that, above so the zone bifurcation. Two. Yeah, zone so zone three. two is going to be lateral. Zone two is specifically going to be your kidneys and their vasculature. And zone three is, and it's going to be A and B, or right and left. And then zone three is going to be your pelvis, your pelvic structures. That's going to be your iliacs, veins, and arteries. So we got a gunshot wound, single hole. It goes into the belly. We got a retroperitoneal hematoma in zone one is expanded. You said that's where the aorta and the IVC live. That's big, bad, this is terrible. Okay, this is a tough situation to be in. So, what do I do? Do I okay. cut a big hole in that uh, retro, that expanding hematoma and, and dive in there and get control? What, what, what do we need to do first? How do we approach this in a systematic fashion? Yeah. So sure, so this is expanding. Uh, you don't really have time to do your normal run through. If I've got that hematoma, but I've got um, a very stable patient, I will do a rapid exploration of the entire abdomen, looking for other potential issues before I, quote, dive in. And we won't dive in, we'll get into that in a second. Uh, but in this patient, this guy or girl has an expanding uh, hematoma and we're gonna be, need to be addressing it pretty quickly. Uh, if you already have it, if you already have not done this, this is a patient that the massive transfusion protocol needs to be activated on, and you need to let, again, getting back to the communication discussions earlier, you need to have an eyeball-to-eyeball, -eyeball, the whites of their eyes discussion with anesthesia, uh, at least uh, mommy and daddy in the room uh, at the time so that they can talk to their trainees and all be on the same page that we are getting into some badness and we have a potential for some very rapid blood loss. Perfect. Okay, so the name of the game is achieving control. Okay, I'm worried that I open this this big expansile, you know, retroperitoneal hematoma that I'm going to encounter bleeding that I can't control. So I need to get some kind of degree of proximal control on the aorta. There's three different options, Doctor Todd. We can do some. We can do supraceliac. You can do descending thoracic. You could do reboa. I think those are three main options. So 
tell me, uh, uh, you know, that's for proximal. For proximal for control, control. Yeah. just yeah. for proximal. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me how you. Let's talk about each of those. So super celiac control. Super celiac control is uh, what I mentioned yeah. earlier, where you're you're pulling the stomach down into the left, and getting into just medial to the lesser curve of the stomach, and right there is going to be the aorta, mm-hmm. uh, right right beyond pars flaccida that the aorta is going to be uh, there at the diaphragm. So yeah. that's your super celiac control. You can either use your hand or uh, if your institution has them, a T-bar, uh, that, that'll that work, or you can put a clamp on it. Yeah. And so that, and, and I think that's the, the hard part. It's hard. You don't tend not to be able to encircle that entire thing, get the whole, get around it entirely. You can, uh, but a lot of times you're compressing against the spine, right? Um, or at least getting that clamp across the entire aorta and having the end, the tips of your clamp jamming into the spine to make sure all the way across. I think one of the best things for, for general surgery residents who have done upper GI type surgery, esophageal work when you're repairing diaphragmatic uh, um, hernias and whatnot, you, that's, that's I think the best look at where that aorta actually sits and how you get to it. And think about how you approach the esophagus and how you skeletonize that. The aorta is right behind it, just a little, little to the left and, and it's that's the, um, you know, I think the most analogous way to think about that anatomy in your approach. Um, okay, how about so descending, descending uh, aortic control? Aortic control, thoracic aortic control. Yeah, aortic control in the chest is is certainly an option. Uh, it's one that I really try to avoid unless I absolutely have to. For me, oftentimes this patient will have already had an ED thoracotomy. If I'm in the abdomen, uh, abdomen's open and I have a live patient, I'm really not trying to go in the chest if I just to get aortic control. Opening up another cavity is going to add significantly to their morbidity and, morbidity and increase their mortality. So I'm really trying to stay out of the chest unless I have a reason to be there. And in my opinion, clamping the aorta, that can be done in the abdomen. Great. Uh, and then Reboa, again, we have a whole separate episode on that. That's a huge topic. We're actually not going to touch on that. That is an option uh, in this setting. And I know Dr. Cotton has lots to say. Dr. Tov has lots to say about it. We're gonna, we'd be here all day if we went into that. So we're going to leave that alone and refer you to our prior episode on that. Um, unless you have a burning, something sh- something limited you want to say about it. Anything specific? No, don't do it. Okay, no, do I, I, would say, I would say I think that's an acceptable means to go. gaining control. And I'm going to stop the discussion right there because cause what you do, that, that's the point of, that's actually the point of it, right? Uh, it, it's about, when we talk about this in the other episodes, about pride, there's multiple ways to do this. Um, it, it is, it, it can be an acceptable way to obtain control and it's all about what your comfort level is and your practice level. Uh, you don't want to be thrown in a Reboa for one of the first or second or third time in a situation like this. But if it's something that you've routinely used, it is a, it is an option. But I think if you're super option. slick with it, that's one thing. Um, I think, you know, the, the you know one of the comparators would be a ruptured AAA. Those guys and girls are using it all the time. Vascular surgeons are using it all the time. And that's, that's a little bit different skill set uh, than trauma surgeons that may or may not be using it a lot. Um, and even if you are a believer in it, and we'll get to this, I guess, next, that's only taking care of the proximal control. Right. Everything we talk about right now is only taking so care let's talk about of inflow. So let's say for inflow. this patient, we've obtained super CDI control, and we actually have a large vascular clamp across the aorta, and we're satisfied with our inflow. So let's talk about distal control. You want to touch yeah, on that yeah so distal, so it may be something I start with uh, is to fish out 
or should I say expose the iliacs at the bifurcation or at least the infra, you know, the very inferior aspect of the aorta. It's all going to depend on your hematoma. And so everything that we're talking about that Dr. Jorgoff is, is talking about, Dr. Tom's talking about, it's going to be all reliant on that size of that hematoma because sometimes that hematoma is dissected everything out and proximal distal control may be radically different than what we're discussing here. Uh, proximal control with Dr. Todd discussed about getting up uh, to the supraceliac is very accessible and very beautiful in some patients and slick, it's very difficult in others. If that giant hematoma is dissecting up there, it's going to kill me to even say it, but that might be a place where getting a supra-diaphragmatic access, not just chest, but even Reboa, if you're really uh, skilled in it, might be a solution because the the supraceliac open approach is inaccessible or dangerous because you would be getting into some very tense hematoma. That's a very good point for proximal hematoma. Right. Okay. Distal, same thing. I'm looking at my hematoma. Is my hematoma obscured my distal aorta? Then I'm going to iliacs. If it's clean, I'm going to go to distal aorta, get wrapped around it. I'm not going to clamp it off because I don't want to make... acutely elevate the pressures in there and blow out whatever clot may or may not be present there. Uh, and then I'm also going to get lassos around, and I'm talking about vessel loops here, get uh, vessel loops around my my outflow with respect to the venous system. I'm going to get all those compared because it may not be, uh, we're, we're assuming or we're kind of, you kind of hear us talking that it's going down to something bright red, but this may be something big and blue that's bleeding too. So we need to get everything kind of uh, lassoed and potential for control, even if the clamps are not on. And I want to put a plug in for one of the uh, kind of uh, another podcast, Audible Bleeding. Uh, Dr. Colonel, or, excuse me, Dr. and Colonel Rasmussen was on for, they did four episodes on. Uh, vascular trauma, which included an abdominal venous and an abdominal uh, arterial episode. And they really nicely, in a lot more anatomic detail than we're talking about here, go into uh, all the key steps to getting control in these situations like this. So I definitely recommend uh, our leaders list, or our listeners check out Audible Bleeding for those episodes. Okay, so uh, you let's say in this patient the trajectory of the bullet Dr. Tobbs suggests that this is going to be, and based on bright red bleeding and expanding uh, hematoma, that this is, you're worried about a proximal abdominal aortic injury, again, based on all these things you see. You have proximal, you have distal control. Now what do you do? So now, now we're, we really need to talk about uh, whether we're talking about supramesocolic or inframesocolic, because the aortic exposure is starkly different for those two locations. If uh, you have an inframesocolic in, uh, hematoma. Tell me what you said, again, for the sake of completeness, mesocolic. What do you mean by that? Infra versus what's your cutoff for infra and supramesocolic? Uh, so when you when you lift up your transverse colon, if the hematoma is below the mesentery or caudal to the transverse colon mesentery, that's inframesocolic. If it is uh, cephalad to the transverse uh, mesocolon, then we're talking supramesocolic. So supramesocolic is going to include the areas of the aorta uh, that have your your branches, your SM, celiac, your SMA. celiac SMA takeoffs. And so if it's if we're talking supramesocolic uh, hematoma with concern for aortic injury, there we're we're talking about a left sided medial visceral rotation, uh, aka aka Maddox or a.k.a. modified Maddox, uh, depending on whether you leave the kidney uh, in situ or not. 
can you right. can you tell us how you go about? So let's say this is a super musicalic, okay, proximal abdominal aortic, you think uh, uh, injury, and you're going to do a, a Maddox procedure. How do you do that? So I'm going to in- rapidly incise the uh, white line atolt, uh, the the left colonic uh, retroperitoneal attachments, uh, incise those all the way up, and rotate the colon. Uh, the left colon, the spleen, and if I'm taking the kidney, I'm incising around gerotas and moving all of that uh, medially uh, until I can get uh, exposure of the aorta. One thing that I think is challenging, I think it's challenging personally in this, is the whole leave the kidney up or leave the kidney down. Sometimes it's decided for you based on uh, dissection if you have bled. Other times it may not be, but you may find it, uh, certainly bringing it up, I think it's easier. Uh, than, than, than leaving it down, but maybe other people don't have the experience. What's the benefit of leaving it up or down? And uh, in specific, maybe even to this situation. If, if, you, if you bring the kidney with you, you're going to get uh, a better posterior aortic uh, exposure. You're going to get the left renal vein out of your way uh, to give you a little bit better aortic uh, exposure. The benefit to not taking the kidney is, of course, uh, faster, uh, less dissection, less risk of uh, causing injury to, to that kidney and its vessels. But uh, sometimes you need to bring the kidney with you. Great. Yeah, I agree. I think, the, I think the hematoma, the dissection of the hematoma plane, which is going to be huge here if, it's going to be, if it is arterial and even venous, is going to help guide me. Uh, if my dissection plane looks like it's above kidney, a lot of times I can always go back and take the kidney up. But like what Dr. Tobb said, it's a lot faster to do it and leave it down and bring things up. And I've more times than not not needed to bring up the kidney Fair. if I've left the kidney down. It's very uncommon that I've had to actually bring the kidney up if that's not what's injured. If it's a zone t- one and two, and I'm thinking it might be kidney trajectory, then I, yeah, that's fine, and the kidney's coming out. But if it's on that border of it really is zone one creeping into zone two, and I, and I think I can do it without it, uh, I'll start with that because, again, it, it can stay down and I can always add that as an adjunct, almost as an extension, like we were talking about in the chest, going from, from uh, sternotomy to you know an infraclavicular to kind of a, a modified clamshell. You can always add that on to get better exposure, uh, but starting with it, I, I usually would leave the kidney down. Perfect. Okay, so let's say uh, you do that. Uh, you leave the kidney down, you do your Maddox procedure or a maneuver, and you see a um, one-centimeter-sized hole. Okay, in the uh, posterior lateral aspect, left side of the aorta uh, between the celiac and SMA, right in that vicinity. Those are those vessels are worst. But, but the it's celiac the and SMA are intact. But that's yeah. what you got. Yeah. Um, you you successfully and carefully follow the trajectory like we of have your one of these bullet. Recently it is. Something. I told you it's all based in real life. All these cases. <laughs> and and you find out what do you, what what and you can also obviously talk about this too. But so how do you repair that? What do you do? So there's a couple more into that matter too. Yeah. They ask you to, in general, you got a big hole in the aorta. How you gonna repair it? Yeah, just sure, to... sure. Um, so proximal distal control is gonna start wide, and then I'm gonna try to narrow my field as far as my occlusion goes. I'm gonna try to start out. It's gonna be like Dr. Tob said. It's gonna be super celiac, and then around the iliacs, and then I'm gonna once I've really identified. Oh, it's just not just, but it's just a hole between the the celiac and the SMA. Now I know what I'm gonna do. Now I can start to perfuse other areas and limit my field of occlusion or, or uh, uh, proximal and distal uh, control. Once I've got that, I'm going to try to mobilize 360 so that I can really see 
what holes? Do I have two holes, one hole? Do I have one that's a sky? What, what exactly is that? Because now I've got control. Now I can, not play is not the right word, but now I can do a little more purposeful, I guess is the better word for it, and, and start to examine this. There's a couple ways to do it, taking down some perforators and some branches so that you can rotate it using your clamps that are applied anteriorly, even like some straight vascular clamps, and then rotating those to the patient's right, rotating those to the patient's left so that you can get a good view 360. Another way to kind of help mobilize it and, and not tear things is between branches uh, is to get a very thin malleable behind it and kind of help to get behind it, pull it up. You can also get umbilical tape or umbilical ties. You can get other atraumatic or minimally traumatic things, red rubbers, what have you, to get behind to kind of help lift this up so that you can, you and your partner can get peaks uh, at, at that vessel in a 360 degree fashion. After I've done that, if I've, if I've ruled out that there's a posterior, now I'm dealing with one whole posterior lateral, anterolateral, what have you, I'm going to try to debride those edges. Uh, and decide whether that patient needs a patch, whether it needs to be resected and do a primary anastomosis, or it can be a minimal to a primary repair. All those based on what I'm looking at in that vessel, in that very, very small space. Yeah, I don't have much uh, much to add. I think the the trick with rotating the clamps is, is a really good one to, to keep in your armamentarium. Um, a lot of these injuries are amenable to primary repair. So a 3-0 proline suture and uh, and so and remember every minute counts here uh, you've really got to get this right on the first try because your 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 uh, viscera are, are ischemic uh, throughout all of this so you've got to you've got to so quickly uh, again uh, like i mentioned earlier ideally uh, you have a, a good set of hands uh, with you uh, to to aid in this process what would you uh, if you had to patch it what would you use so you can use in this field again People may go, oh, does he have bowel injury or not have bowel injury? Uh, and I'll say it doesn't matter. I, I was just getting ready to say it. He pulled it, plucked it right Look out of my mouth. you guys on the same page. <laughs> well, we, we had to disagree on rebel. I had to have something <laughs> to disagree on, right? Uh, you can do a patch. You can do PTFE. Uh, Dacron. Yeah, yeah, there's several different things you can use to patch it. I suspect... Um, Bovine pericardium. Bovine pericardium. Artograft. Yeah. You know, just uh, like carotid. Yeah. Okay. All right, uh, to finish this off, let's say that uh, that hematoma's again in zone one. You have, for every other reason, without going into details, you think it's venous. Okay? You get control, you open things up, it is in fact venous, and you have a significant uh, IBC injury. Uh, uh, back to you, Dr. Taub, how do you like to repair your IBC injuries? So we're, uh, I'm, I'm assuming we're talking uh, infrahepatic IVC here. Uh, You're not behind the liver. Yep, you got a super hepatic exposure looking it? at it. So we're, we're looking at this. Uh, generally, I put take two sponge sticks and, and smash, smash them down on the IVC, and I've got uh, initial control with that. And then I'm reaching uh, for either some Alice clamps to grab the edges and lift them up, and then a side-biting Satinsky clamp. And once I've got uh, that side-biting clamp, I'm doing a lateral venorophy on that cava if it's amenable to it. The other part of this... What kind uh, of suture are you using? Uh, here, uh, 2-0 or, or 3-0 proline suture for this, uh, maybe 4-0, uh, but, uh, you know, so, so 3-0 or 4-0 proline, uh, caveat here, uh, and anytime you have, uh, penetrating wounds to a hollow structure, whether it's the bowel or, 
a blood vessel. If you've got one hole, you better look for another one. So look inside, uh, look inside that IVC and make sure you don't have a posterior injury. And sometimes you can fix that posterior injury uh, through the anterior. Uh, or you may need to uh, mobilize the IVC to get at the posterior one to repair it. A few different techniques uh, for repairing the IVC. But uh, in general, I'm doing uh, lateral venorophy on these. Uh, but if the patient is in extremis, I haven't uh, met an infrarenal IVC that I have no issues uh, ligating that. And, of course, if you do, you're going to need to uh, make sure you wrap uh, the legs in ACE wraps, keep them elevated to uh, help avoid uh, venous congestion of the extremities and potentially compartment syndrome, which is something you also need to watch out for if you're going to be ligating the IVC. And you can narrow the IVC into a pretty significant amount and still have uh, some functionality to it as well, correct? You can, like I said, you can narrow it to zero if you have to, <laughs> but uh, you know, if, if you if you stenose the IVC, that's that's not the end of the world. Consider putting the patient on aspirin uh, postoperatively. Great. Yeah, I think 360 degrees is important here as well. To do that, uh, and this is, I have a lot less uh, uh, reservation than even on the arterial side, is getting having a vascular clip up on the field and taking down those perforators, those you know lumbars going back there to really be able to pull off a 360 degree view. You can get, do that, like he said, straight through if it's a through and through through the anterior hole, or you can uh, rotate it and do the posterior. Being very gentle because again, this is uh, venous versus arterial. I think a lot of this has to do with the physiology, like you talked about, about whether I'm going to try to repair it. It's not just the anatomic insult to the vessel; it's also the physiology of the patient that they're going to tolerate. But again, if you've done enough elective stuff during your, uh, you know, it just so, just so and move, just but but don't and don't be wimpy about the bites. Uh, and then finally, if it's in this area that you're talking about, this kind of sole uh, in this zone one, uh, more times than not, I've found it associated duodenal injury uh, in this area. So you got to be careful to look at the stuff. The, the trajectory, following the trajectory of your bullet to its completeness is critically yep. important, right? You will miss things. Correct. All right, next topic of the discussion is going to be how to evaluate a patient with multiple gunshot wound uh, injuries. So uh, let's say we have a hemodynamically stable patient. They're in the bay, Dr. Cotton. They have holes in, in their, their, let's just say they have multiple holes in their belly for, in this patient. Uh, what are some of the kind of things we may not, uh, not often think about <laughs> in, uh, in these patients in terms of how you manage them, work them up, et cetera, and, and some of the terminology we use, uh, uh, different uh, adjuncts to our, to our evaluation. Yeah, sure. So you're assuming already that they're hemodynamically stable. This is a hemodynamically stable patient. Okay. And they've been shot in their abdomen, not their belly, right? Yeah, that's right. That would be correct, cause, sir. Because bellies are, are for Sesame Street. Wow. Well, <laughs> and, 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 and I enjoy Sesame Street. Yes, sir. That is correct. Um, <laughs> no, so they've got multiple... Uh, well, they got multiple torso gunshot Yeah, yeah torso. Let's call it torso. Torso. Um, they get multiple torso gunshot wounds. They are hemodynamically stable. Yeah. They are going to get a rapid ABCDE. And that E, for you guys and girls that are out there that are thinking about um, just doing your ABC, maybe D, and then moving on to your secondary, there's nothing that, like, is not triggering. That triggers me in the trauma bay when we stop there. To me, it's ABCDE. E is not just environmental control, making sure they're not getting cold, yada, yada, yada. It's also exposure. And definitely in a multiple gunshot wound, if you don't do it in every other patient, in the multiple gunshot wound, you absolutely need to be 
examining every single area of that patient and doing a rapid log roll for that patient. This should include, and again, depending on your habitus, uh, or the patient's habitus, should I say, this should lo look at uh, the axilla. This should include looking inframammary folds, penicular folds, what have you. This should be frog-legging that patient, looking in the perineum for wounds, lifting up the scrotum if that's the case. More important, I think, than even doing the rectal exam at this point is looking in the perineum for gunshot wounds. I've seen through and through uh, perineal gunshot wounds that were completely missed because no one spread the cheeks. They did a rectal exam, missed it, but the, uh, the buttocks were not spread to look and there were two through and through wounds down there. So rapid evaluation of that patient, but a thorough, a thorough one, looking in the back of their scalp to see if they're abundant and but stable, maybe they've got a scalp lack or they've got a wound in the back of their neck. If they, for some horrible reason, have a cervical collar mobilization on, that should come off at this time. Uh, they are either already a quad or there's not an unstable injury in the, and that collar should be disposed of. Even though you're gonna to continue to maintain reasonable spine precautions, you're not gonna have that collar in place to hide uh, a potential wound. Yeah, I'm looking at every square inch of this patient because this is really the operative planning stage. This is gonna tell you where you're gonna make an incision. There's a very high likelihood, multiple gunshot wounds, you're going, to the, you're going to the operating room and you need to know where you're gonna cut. What incision are you gonna make? Because you can't make all of them. So you need to know, and I do my primary survey in penetrating a little bit different uh, here uh, with the resources that we have with x-ray so readily available. Uh, in penetrating a little bit different, I do my full exposure before I take any films, uh, which is a little bit different than I do in blunt trauma where I'm getting a chest pelvis and fast exam, oftentimes before I roll the patient. In penetrating, I need to know where I'm gonna be needing to take pictures, so I'm seeing every inch of them front and back uh, before I, I'm shooting any films. And, and we should say that bullet holes can sometimes be very hard to find, especially in overweight people, but bullet holes can be deceptively small and insignificant looking. Now, what is the whole thing, Dr. Top, about the idea of an even number of holes and bullets? What does that mean? So you, you need to know, you know, are you looking for retained bullets, or could these have been through and throughs? So if I see, if I see two gunshot wounds, I either need to find no bullets in the patient, or I need to find two bullets. You can't have two holes and one bullet. If you have an odd number, as Dr. Tob knows, there's only one, there's, there's three potential answers to having an odd number. You're missing a hole, you're missing a bullet, or you missed something in the H&P, and they've been shot before. Yeah. Which, which is not uncommon. Okay. Uh, what can I say about, what if I, what can I say about entry and exit wounds? Nothing. Right. You can't, correct? Uh, this is a bullet wound. It's not an entry and exit wound. You don't know the trajectory of that bullet until you don't know. Uh, and maybe you, you can, you may never know for that matter. There, um, there are ways to know, and I leave every single one of those ways to the forensic uh, pathologist. Right. So, Dr. Todd, what about fast exams, CT exams, again, in a hemodynamic Before you jump over to the, yeah, the fast and the, and the x rays, which again are, are part of this evaluation, uh, how you're going to also do this from a to do your x-rays during E, both anterior and, and posterior or ventral and dorsal, I'm marking those holes within reason 
If they've got 20 holes, if it's a shotgun wound with birdshot, I'm not marking all those holes. But if I've got a reasonable number of holes that I can identify, I'm putting a paper clip near each one of those. And one, one little just style point is don't have the trainee or yourself put the clip directly, directly over the hole because a lot of these are bleeding and your tape and clip are not going to stick. So put them right near it or as close as you can. Use a large paper clip, not those tiny ones, and use wide tape if you can. Do two inch if you can and have them ready to go and apply to the uh, uh, to the patient. For the people that are doing the primary uh, survey, uh, you yourself or the trainee, have them taped to their gowns ready to go and they can just pop, 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 place them on the patient as they identify. Fast and CT. Uh, this is in plain films, right? And plain, yes, yeah, very so, good. So yeah. absolutely. So let's, uh, yeah, let's uh, go reverse. Let's start with the fast and CT and then we'll talk about how you use plain films and, and different types of films we'll be shooting that might be useful for identifying. Uh, this this is another one where Dr. Cotton and I might disagree. Uh, fast exam in, in penetrating trauma. I'm I'm sort of a a purist. I think that there's two indications for fast exams of the abdomen, and that's a hemodynamically. First one is a hemodynamically unstable blunt trauma patient, and the second one is for education. Those are my those are really the two indications that I really believe in for fast exams. Uh, here we do fast exams on every level one trauma patient that comes in the door. Uh, a lot of that is uh, for education. And, uh, you know, if you if I have a patient who's hemodynamically unstable and they have a hole from a gunshot wound in their umbilicus, that fast exam does not help me. I know that that patient's bleeding to death from their gunshot wound. The only thing that fast exam is is doing is slowing me down from getting the heck out of the emergency room in the operating room. Counterpoint. So I wouldn't let the fast show me that. So this is very interesting. So this is, um, I think it's, it used to be very clear of East Coast, West Coast. You know, it was, uh, it was the East Coast, West Coast rap war was into the trauma wars. And so whether you were Eastern trauma or Western, yeah, you would go one way or the other. I was raised in residency and then later in fellowship and then at my first job with a very uh, east heavy uh, education uh, and or practice versus west coast uh, and then when I got here I ran into a lot of west coast uh, push which was uh, DPL or at least fast sucks uh, <laughs> that's so how I was, all, I, I was, was de- I'm definitely a west coast yeah I was I'm east coast west I was raised west uh, uh, that 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 uh, fast has its benefit so to answer and, and give the counterpoint, uh, I 100% agree with the educational opportunity here. It's a non-invasive test. It is something you should practice and practice on every single patient that allows you to. In the unstable patient, I, I agree, it has very little ben- benefit except to triage cavities. If I have a multi-torso gunshot wound and my fast Pericardial fast is negative, chest x-ray is clean, but if a positive abdominal fast, I know where my money is on that patient. If I have a negative abdominal fast and a positive pericardial fast, it doesn't mean I'm not going in the abdomen. It just gives me some direction and or opens my plan for what other cavities I'm going to be going into in the unstable. In the stable, I think it does serve some purpose in helping you triage and or, again, seeing what a positive fast really looks like for training purposes. And so, again, I do I agree more than I disagree, obviously, with, with Dr. Top on that. But I do think it does have some opportunity. And, again, I'm not going to let a fast get in my way of going to the operating room, but I 
will allow it to happen as a non-invasive maneuver to evaluate a patient and or support my arguments pro or con for cavitation or cavity, sorry, uh, as well as for educational benefit. Let's say you have a patient who uh, has uh, no signs of injury to the chest. Uh, you have a positive fast, the hematically stable. Do you go, do you need to go to the CT scanner? No. Okay. Um, X-rays. X-rays in the trauma bay. Um, again, hematically stable patient, multiple holes in their torso. Yeah. How do you yep. use Regardless that? of the holes, they can have a hole in their buttock, like we talked about earlier. I'm going to start with a chest X-ray. Okay. I'm going to start with. A, I'm going to identify with paper clips every hole I have. And then I'm going to start with the chest and start marching down until I find all the holes right. and all the bullets. Very good. Uh, yeah. I, I think the, the utility of an abdominal x-ray uh, for a gunshot wound to the, to the abdomen, uh, I think it can certainly be helpful, uh, especially for a, a back wound, uh, because at that point, I'm going to, if the patient is stable, uh, and there's a this single the caveat. Of this is a very stable patient, and I'm doing operative planning. I know I'm going to the abdomen, but maybe do I need to look at the kidney a little bit better or the chest, that the orchoabdominal? Stable patient with a gunshot wound to the back. Uh, I'm probably going to shoot a, a lateral, right. lateral abdomen, uh, because if that if that uh, bullet is lodged behind the spine. Uh, then I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to the operating room with this. Uh, if the bullet, if the single hole is in the back and the bullet uh, on the lateral film is at the anterior abdomen, my workup is done and I'm operating. Yeah, I, I personally find the, the laterals in our system, and again, I think this goes back to all politics are local, all problems are local. All solutions should be local. And I think this goes back to the places that I've trained versus maybe the places that Dr. Taub trained uh, and practiced. Lateral films are not as easy and fluid in my experience, but in some places they're, they're just as easy as getting a, 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 an AP. Uh, and so in my brain, early on, laterals were such a pain in the butt. And so in the stable stable, they would get a and AP, and then get fast to help augment. Okay. So you brought up CT scan. Yeah. I think, you know, so who gets a CAT scan with penetrating abdominal trauma? Mm -hmm. This is a patient in my, in my mind that, you know, for a gunshot wound, number one, is absolutely hemodynamically stable. And number two, I think, has a tangential injury, and I'm trying to prove that. If you have a gunshot wound to the abdomen, uh, and you don't have any hard signs, uh, then then I'm, I'm maybe going to consider a CT scan. But the, the such high percentage of, uh, of bullet wounds uh, to the abdomen are going to get into the peritoneal cavity that uh, a CT scan is almost, for an anterior abdominal gunshot wound, almost never warranted. Okay. Let's say you think it is warranted, maybe tangential, uh, a very stable patient, you think you have a tangential injury. Let's say fast is negative even, um, and it's in a trajectory or a presumed trajectory uh, that um, you're worried about rectal injuries. What about rectal contrast, Dr. Cotton? Real, real quick, go back up to the chest. I'm also going to add this if I think this is hepatic, diaphragmatic, yeah. uh, and or thoracoabdominal on the other side. That's another place in a very stable patient with a pretty unimpressive workup, fast negative, abdominal fast, whatever, pericardial fast. 
then I might go over to CAT scan just to see what kind of chest involvement I have and or did he have a very high dome, he or she have a high dome liver injury yeah. and diaphragm that may not need to be uh, a laparotomy. And another opportunity is when I'm triaging multiple victims or multiple yeah. patients. Uh, that, that, that might help stratify who's going, or uh, triage who's going when and who's going second. Yeah. Now back to the rectal side. Yeah, rectal contrast. Is that useful for you? Uh, what does uh, it tell you? So I think rectal contrast is useful from a left colon standpoint. I don't know rectal contrast is all that useful for a rectal potential injury. If I've got a, like Dr. Todd talked about, that left flank that may or may not be tangential, that may or may not be retroperitoneal and have missed things based on his, his AP and laterals, uh, that I think that rectal contrast would help as it gets to the splenic flexure transverse colon to rule out that left colon sigmoid, if you will. But actually for rectal rectal, those are patients that I would prefer based on trajectory from, again, AP and lateral and or just looking at the holes, take that patient upstairs, uh, put them to sleep, sleep lithotomy and do a, a formal uh, EUA proctoscopy, sigmoidoscopy if I need to. Perfect. Do I need to remove bullets that are retained? No. What if the bullet is in a sensitive area next to the heart or spinal cord or something along those lines? So if it's in the spinal cord impingement uh, concerns, uh, then I think having your spine colleagues consult and see the accessibility versus, you know, the, the benefit versus the risk of it in an area like that. Uh, near the heart uh, versus in the heart, intravericardio, obviously you're going to be already in there for these. A lot of these patients you're talking about, except for the spine, you're already there. And if, yeah, I'm not going to leave a bullet that's sitting by the heart when I've done a sternotomy. I'm not going to leave a bullet next to the uh, iliac when I've already done a laparotomy and I'm there to explore. But one that is a, I think the one that you probably brought up that's more reasonable would be one that is near the spine. And I think that would be one that you could talk about doing. Otherwise, I would not go digging for bullets. It's mm -hmm. going to cause more damage than it does benefit. And last question about that, what is the whole thing with these rubber, you know, if I, if I want to pick a bullet out, the, the scrub text and hand me a, a rubber shot at hemostat, what's that all about? So the, the, the potential for that is that the, the markings on a normal hemostat and or clamp, those uh, edges are going to cause some potential uh, damage and or uh, indentations to a bullet. And from a forensic standpoint, you could alter it and mess up the ability for them to link bullet to gun. And so I was raised during my training to always grab those, if possible, with the rubber shot protected clamp to pull it out and to not uh, not do the old uh, TV show of slapping it in the stainless steel. Oh, metal, metal bucket every no, time. No, no. no. Metal, coast, coast. metal bucket every time knowing that what, what's really probably going to happen with that bullet after after uh, you send it to wherever right. it goes. Now, again, all those comments, again, so I trained at a place where, in my fellowship, where literally Philly PD would come into the OR in a bunny suit and get it to keep that chain of custody super tight. Other places, when I got here to 
well, my first job at Vanderbilt and then here in Houston, I've never seen that since. And so it's probably fine to grab it with an unprotected clamp and or throw it in a stainless steel bucket. But when you're in a system that really has a tight chain of custody, I think it's more reasonable to be a little more cautious and a little, show a little more uh, nuances to uh, and finesse to uh, taking it out. Perfect. All right, so Dr. Cotton, Dr. Taub, really, really appreciate your time today. We actually had had planned, we got lots more cases to discuss, but we just running out of time. Uh, and uh, I think they were, uh, this is an excellent, very nuanced discussion. This is kind of the, the nitty gritty of trauma. So I've really enjoyed having you guys on. I really enjoyed the opportunity of being here to train with you both too. Um, so uh, before we go, Dr. Cotton, Dr. Taub, tell me one thing at least about what you guys enjoy about your profession. Well, there's, there's so much, but I, I think one of the things that really, you know, really sticks out in, in my mind, we're, we're doing life-saving surgery here. We're, we're taking people who are completely normal one minute. We're talking about the number one killer of Americans age zero to 45. The number one cause of most, the, of, of the largest loss of productive life years uh, is, is due to trauma, traumatic injury deaths. And, and injuries. And so the ability to reverse that, to give a, a mother or father a chance uh, to celebrate a birthday with their, with their son or daughter or brother and sister again uh, without our interventions is, is really what, what wakes me up in the morning. That's my why, is coming in here and trying to make a difference in somebody's life, trying to save somebody's son or daughter or mother or father. So for me, it goes back to why I chose general surgery to begin with. I wanted to operate all over the body. And my program director, first day of uh, my residency orientation, uh, Dr. Deborah Coyvin at the University of Missouri, uh, began her orientation to the new general surgery interns that day, 1997. The general surgery is the surgery of the skin and its contents. And that's always stuck with me. And so I've always wanted to be a surgeon that operated on the skin and its contents. And I could find no other specialty, other than maybe pediatric surgery, uh, where you could truly operate on patient A that comes to the door, regardless of their injury, within reason, everything, head to toe, skin and its contents. And trauma has offered that opportunity, and that's what attracted me to trauma. I wanted to continue to be a general surgeon and on top of that, be an acute general surgeon, if you will. And I think that's really what has kind of pushed me through the years in, in fellowship training uh, as the program director is to make sure that all the fellows leave here comfortable with pretty much everything of the skin and its contents. So I guess uh, yes, would, whatever you do, listeners, uh, make sure you get out there and dominate, dominate the day. day. Until next time, dominate the day.